Father in heaven, we do thank you for this time that we have together this morning to worship you. As we sing sung of your praises, your worthiness, your sufficiency, um, all of the wonderful uh, attributes that you you display each day for us to see and that we might grow in our faith and our trust. We're ended with a song that reminds us of your power to change us, and um, we pray that you would perform that work, that you would accomplish what you've started in us. We pray that you would be with us in, in that transforming process. Lord, we also pray this morning for those who are responding to these fires. We ask that you would keep them safe, put a hedge of protection over them, help them to accomplish the task that they have before them, and um, to protect us. And we thank you for them. We thank you for the gift and the strength that you've given them. And we pray that you would be with them in this journey. Lord, as we open up your word, please guide us and direct us in such a way that um, we can see your strength and hear your voice and know your will. Without that, Lord, we, we waste our time. We need to uh, know you better. So open up your word to us this morning and share with us what you would have for us. Please grant me uh, wisdom, boldness, and clarity as I communicate your word. And we'll give you the praise for it in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter number uh, five, if you would turn there with me in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter number five. three-week series that we're in right now through Hebrews 5.11, from Hebrews 5.11 through 6 and verse 6. Um, Last week, we talked about what is the source of dull Christianity or what uh, pushes a person or motivates a person to become dull in their Christianity. This week, we're going to deal with what are some signs um, that you can see in your life, some ways to identify if you're on that path. If you're moving in that direction towards this dull Christianity that our text talks about. So let's read, um, if you would just follow along in your Bibles as I will read aloud. Uh, Hebrews 5 beginning in verse 11. About this we have much to say and it it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. And if we could just stop there for a moment just to make a reference. Um, What the author of Hebrews is stating is not that these people have reached a certain maturity level in their Christian faith and therefore they should be teaching and not learning. What he's referring to is how long that they've been professing to be Christians. In other words, he uses the same principle in 1 Corinthians 3 where he talks about how long that they've been professing to be saved. And the implication is, is that uh, there are natural uh, changes that take place in a person's life who is a Christian. And therefore, as time goes by, there are certain expectations that God has of his people that his indwelling spirit ought to be creating. 
There ought to be some natural changes taking place in an individual's life who is indwelt by God's spirit. If those things are not taking place, then there is the danger that that person is not indwelt by the spirit of God. That's the whole emphasis of this passage of scripture. This is a warning passage of scripture. The author of Hebrews, and in this context, what you see is the preacher is God. Um, If you wanted to look and try to find God in this context, you would find him preaching this message. He is preaching Hebrews. And so he's saying there are certain things that you should be displaying as a Christian over a season of time. And if you reach that season or you're saved for many years or you're professing to be saved for many years, but you're not seeing these fruits, there is something to be concerned about, something to to be... Um, I'm not worried about is the right word, but something to be cautious about. There should be these fruits taking place. And again, just remember that he's referring to time here, not level of education. There, there are things that take place in a person indwelt by the Spirit of God that have no relation to education. They have no relation to anything other than the fact that they are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And therefore, over time, the Spirit of God is working out his will in that individual's life. So that's the reference there to time in um, verse number 12. Let's go on. He says, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. Okay, I'm just make a note about that as well. What he's saying is, is that let's move past these basic principles of Christ. He's going to actually name them. And then he talks about spiritual maturity. He talks about growing into not just... Um, claiming to be righteous on the inside, but beginning to display that righteousness on the outside. It is, it is literally a call to practical external righteousnesses that should be the natural result of somebody who is, in, is internally righteous. Okay, think about it from this perspective. We expect a sinner to do what? We expect a sinner to sin. It's a very natural thing. When, when we received Adam and Eve's Um, nature of sin, we expect that every individual beyond Adam and Eve will be sinful because they have a sinful nature, right? So I have a new nature living within me, and that nature is righteous. I have the nature of Christ, the Bible says, the divine nature inside of me. It is alien to me, but it is in me. And the Bible says in, in Romans 8, he who is led He who is controlled, he who is led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. So if somebody is righteous on the inside, we should begin to see righteousnesses on the outside. We should expect that there's going to be some changes taking place in an individual's life who has has received the Lord, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior. I, I find it challenging I find much, um, I, I would say fear 
for our culture today of people who, have, who profess Christ as their Lord and Savior, but you could watch them for, first of all, from the moment of salvation and watch them for 10 years and there is zero change in their life. Zero transformation, zero alterations. And, and we even teach a theology that promotes that. We teach a theology of, of you're, you're saved and you're in and, and nothing else matters. The problem with that theology is that the fruits that the Lord produces in us are the ways by which we know that we're in the Lord. If we're not bearing those fruits, we should have no confidence that the Lord dwells inside of us. And that's a fearful thing. And that's, Hebrews doesn't deal with that lightly. in, In later chapters, he talks about it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a very, very serious thing to get this dealt with now and not later. So go on with me. I'm going to go back to verse 1 of of chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundations of repentance from dead works and faith towards God and of instruction about washing and laying on of hands the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this just note again, these are not basic doctrines to us today, are they? These are all we know, honestly. This is all we talk about. We, 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 we have to continuously talk about these basic things because people haven't settled in their heart these basic things to move on to the actual expression of the righteousness that, that Christ has planted within us. This is the warning that he's giving us here. It, it, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to hear because he's actually saying to us, to move beyond these basic doctrines that are the doctrines that we talk about all the time. And, and not just us, but, but our whole, the whole culture of Christianity is fixated on these doctrines that, the, that the, the author of Hebrews calls basic. It'd be like God standing up here preaching to us and saying, hey, what you're clinging to is basics. Move beyond the basics. And it's important that we move beyond the basics because moving beyond the basics proves that we have gotten the basics. The basics have produced what they're supposed to produce in our life. Let's go on. He says, and this we will do if God permits. In other words, this is a grace that God gives us. And then he goes on and says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. So in other words, they've had this whole, this whole, what, this whole experience, we'll just call it an experience. They've had this whole experience and they go through this whole experience and ultimately they fall away. In other words, they fall back into the old patterns, the old the old faith that they had before, or whatever might be the case that they were trusting in or what they were um, controlled by or, or whatever might be the case. He says, he says, if they fall away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance because, or as the ESV says, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God 
to their own harm and holding him in contempt. In other words, if Jesus Christ wasn't sufficient to save the first time, he's not going to be sufficient the second time or the third time. He is sufficient to save. And he deals with this idea of constantly going back to this repentance, constantly going back to these basics because you have never settled in those basics. We talked last week about an article entitled Obesity Could Be the True Killer of Football Players. And this article dealt with the fact that head injuries are not the greatest danger to NFL players, but obesity is because oversized athletes become lethargic and unhealthy after they retire. In other words, these athletes who are eating and working out all the time, once they stop working out all the time but don't stop eating, they become very unhealthy to themselves, and this ultimately can lead to their death. The, apostle, the writer of this book is talking about our spiritual life in that same way, that we can become the Christian life for a professing Christian especially, not a regenerate one, but a professing one, can become something of an immediate excitement, like an immediate entrance into the NFL, but then a slow, lethargical, lazy move away from the things of God. Matthew 13 and verse 12 says it this way, to the one who has, more will be given to him, and he will have abundance. Okay, so one person has something, the Spirit of God will just say, the truth, understanding, and the Bible says that they're going to continuously grow, and they're going to one day reach a state of abundance, having an abundance of that. But it, but it doesn't stop there. He says, but from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. In other words, he will, he will be slowly declining, not increasing, not growing in righteousness, but de- declining in righteousness. This is a picture of that dull Christianity, that professing Christian who has never truly embraced Jesus Christ has, has never experienced in, internally and personally the work of Christ in a salvific way, yet they go through life with certain rituals and certain ceremonies and certain sacrifices and certain systems that make them feel okay as they perform these things, maybe on Sunday morning and maybe Sunday night and maybe Wednesday night, and they go through life with these rituals, but there's never really an intimacy with Christ And slowly it declines. And folks, this is the reason why our culture, it's not like we went from having church on Sunday morning that now we're having it on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. But we went from having church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night to having it on Sunday morning only. This is not because people are growing. It's because people who are professing are declining. The Lord is exposing us for where we are. We went from an Acts 2 where people met every single day to read and study God's word to 2019 where people meet at one time a week and that is something that's very flexible. It's the most flexible thing in our schedule if we're honest with ourselves. This is not because there's a group of passionate Christians for Jesus that have put Jesus at the forefront of their schedule. 
It's because there's a lot of professing Christians who don't want to go to hell when they die, but really don't want anything to do with a commitment to Jesus Christ, a passion for Jesus Christ, a love for Jesus Christ that, that drives everything that they do. We want to, be a, 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 we want to, to, to have a Christianity that fits right into our comfort zone, Right? You know, that, that, that nice little pitch that comes right down the middle that you can turn and it's in your wheelhouse. Christianity is not like that. The devil doesn't make it that easy. It takes sacrifice. It takes suffering. All of these things are a part of the Christian life. What we are seeing in our culture today is we're seeing the evidences of what we're reading in this text, people who are committed to ceremonies and, sa- and, 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 and sacrifices of, of some kind, but they're not committed to Christ. They're not devoted to him. They're not passionately in love with Jesus. Listen, you don't have to tell a young man and a young woman who are married or, or dating or engaged, you don't have to make plans for them to get together. They will find a way to get together whenever they possibly can because they're in love with each other. We have to plan less and less and less at the church because we're not in love with Jesus. It's not a driving force in our life where we're looking for things to do for Jesus. It's a driving force in our lives where we're looking for things not to do for Jesus. It's not built around a passion for him. I remember in the Old Testament when they were gathering up money for, to, build, to build, I believe it was to build the temple, but it may have been something else, but they were gathering up money to build something and the, the emphasis, emphasis was they had to tell people to stop giving money because there was so much that came in. Because they loved the Lord. It was a burning passion in their heart. And we read of that in 2 Corinthians chapter number 9 where this group of people who were under a great burden beg the apostle Paul to take their money. Why? That's crazy. Because they love Jesus. It's not crazy if you love Jesus. This is what he's, this is what he's referring to here in, in, the, in, this, in this short passage of scripture. Not to live, not to live or to, or to fight against this lethargic, uncaring, lazy, apathetic, slothful Christianity that is all rituals and no relationship. It slowly loses its excitement. It slowly loses its purpose and it specifically loses its point. When we begin to walk through life in such a way that we don't see that the point of everything that we do is to glorify God and exalt Jesus Christ, all of a sudden there's nothing that you do to the point of eating and drinking that doesn't matter how you do it. That's what, that's what 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. If the devil can get us to lose sight of the point of why we live, he wins. May we never lose sight of the point of why we are here and why we live. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that everything is done, that no flesh will glory in his presence, but those who boast or glory will glory in the Lord. 
So in our passage this morning, we see, we're going to see seven things that are um, what I would call just signs. We, we use the word signs for sake of alliteration. Uh, maybe symptoms is another word that you could use for it. The Bible tells us in, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Test yourself. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. So this, these seven things are, are signs. They're, they're, they're symbolic. They're symptoms. Like, you know, you look for things in your life. If you have a rash or if you have a headache or if you have a fever or if you have something, you, you, you tend to think, okay, I must have a physical issue. So I'm going to go to the doctor and get it worked out, right? Um, same thing, same principle applies this morning in this message is that there are symptoms that God has put into our world so that we can identify where we're at spiritually, so that we can deal with it. We can do something about it. We can go to him and we can plead with him for mercy and help. And, he's, and we just go back one chapter and he is the one who gives mercy and the one that gives help. So I want to give you these seven things. These seven signs are these seven symptoms of somebody who is on the path of becoming spiritually, um, on the path of revealing a spiritual deadness that we get there through spiritual laziness, okay? We're on the, it's, it's not that we become spiritually dead, it's that we reveal spiritual deadness. And, and it happens over time, it happens over um, a season that, that, that works out in our lives. So seven things, if you're taking notes this morning, you, you, you should be able to follow these fairly well um, as I go through them, and they'll be alliterated. So the first one is that a person will become unteachable. The Bible says in verse number 11 about this, and when he says this, he's referring to the intercessory work of Christ, about this intercessory or priestly work of Christ, we have much to say, but it is hard to explain. And this word, uh, the, the, there's just a couple of words in this phrase that are significant to the phrase. The, the word hard means difficult or um, just challenging to explain. And the word explain even carries with it more emphasis in that it, it talks about explaining organizing, illustrating, or systematizing. In other words, if you can picture a, a teacher who gets up in uh, front of a class and they go through rigorous explanation, illustration, explanation, they give, maybe they put some slides up on the wall, maybe they show a video of what's taking place, and then they have a handout where you fill out the information, and you talk about that somebody that goes through this rigorous process of explaining a situation or a circumstance, and at the end of that explanation, that, that student is sitting there and they haven't gotten anything. It's like they're looking at you, and this teacher is just, I mean, you, you, you could never question the, the, the giftedness of the teacher because the teacher has done a phenomenal job of illustrating and explaining and all of these things. The teacher has done an amazing job of making it clear what the truth is that's being presented, but the person sitting in the crowd just sits there with a dumb look on their face that says, I don't get it. I, don't, I just simply don't get it. It's not, it's not that they don't get it because they're not intellectual. It's that they don't get it because they're not spiritual. Um, 1 Corinthians 1 or 2 talks about that the spiritual things are not discernible by the natural mind because they are foolishness to them. 
So this reference here is that this person is simply an unteachable person. They're unwilling to learn what the truths are. They're unwilling to understand, comprehend, accept what God is showing them clearly. And if you take the picture here that's presented in our scriptures, you have a, Jesus is talking to this group of Jewish people, Hebrew people, who have experienced all of the ceremonies of the Old Testament, right? All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. I mean, literally, they have experienced extraordinary illustrations of Christ. Beyond what you and I will ever be able to understand or comprehend, they have seen things pointing to Christ for hundreds of years, pointing to him over and over again in all different facets, in all different illustrations, in all different ways. And they get to this point and the writer of Hebrews says, you still don't get it. You still don't get the fact that all of those things that happened for all of those years were pointing to a person who was going to bring deliverance the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, but they were, they were incapable, they were incapable of comprehending what the Lord was teaching them through all of those illustrations. It was impossible for them to learn. They could, you could cram as much information into their mind as you wanted to, but they were not going to get what you were saying. They were not going to understand it. Because why? Why does a dull Christian or a professing Christian not get a very well-expounded explanation of truth? Because they're unregenerate. They have no ability to discern, to distinguish between that which is spirit, between spiritual things. They cannot comprehend, they cannot grasp it. It is impossible for them to do so. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 13. We made reference to this in the beginning of the sermon, Matthew 13. While you're turning there, let me, let me um, refer you to 2 Timothy 3, 7 in some, at some point reading this verse. It says that they were ever learning they were ever learning, they were ever compiling information in their mind, but they never came to an understanding of the truth. They were ever learning, but never understanding. Matthew 13 and verse 14, the Bible says, Indeed, in the case of the prophecy of Isaiah, it is fulfilled, which says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but you will not perceive, or again, the same idea or understanding. For this people's heart has grown, what's the next word there? This people's heart has grown dull. Same word, lethargic, lazy, not passionate about Christ, lost the point completely felt like all these ceremonies and sacrifices were meant for something other than pointing to Christ. And when you lose the point of what you're doing, when you lose the point of why you go to church and why you give and why you sacrifice and why you suffer, when you lose the point of those things, sooner or later you'll stop doing those things. That's why it's called dull. Dull means you've lost the point. You've lost the point. 
What happened to these people? Jesus, uh, God displays for them Christ. He points to them with a sharp arrow. This is the point. And they lost the point. They were unteachable. He goes on to say, for this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn that I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes that they see and your ears that they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and do not see it and to hear what you hear but do not hear it. In other words, many prophets, many important people, many many wise people, many righteous people have sought to know these truths, but it was, it, was, it was impossible for them to know those truths because they were spiritually dead. Yet your eyes and your ears have been blessed to hear and to see and to understand. And the warning of this text is the same as we see in Hebrews. Do not grow dull. Do not fall in the same trap that they fell into. Do not grow lazy and lethargic. Well, we've got it figured out. We've got it, we, we know where we stand. We begin to grow lazy and lethargic in these things. So the first thing that you see in an individual that is a professing Christian, but properly, possibly an unregenerate, is that they're not teachable in the things of God. They're not teachable in the things of God. They're not able to be taught, or they're not growing. The second thing that you see is that they are undisciplined. This goes right to our, our, the term that's used in our text. He says that they are, this, these truths are difficult to explain because they have, grown, they have grown slow or dull of hearing. And this means that they're not disciplined in their hearing. They're not, they've grown lazy, slothful, sluggish in what they hear. A lack of discipline, a lack of listening, a lack of, of um, applying the things that they've learned. James 1 to 19 warns us to be slow to speak and to be quick to hear. To be slow to speak and quick to hear. Be disciplined in the things that we hear. In Proverbs, we see all throughout the book of Proverbs a warning, a challenge to listen to listen, to listen to those who are, have wisdom, to listen to those who are over us, to listen and to hear these things. Romans ten seventeen says, faith cometh by hearing. We're to hear the things that God teaches us through his word. We're to listen to the things that God teaches us from his word. It's not just hearing what God says, but it's listening to what God says. The difference is simply that you you diligently place an emphasis on discerning or, 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 or not just hearing for information, but hearing for application. You're listening. You're diligently putting energy and effort into hearing what is being said. And then you're applying. You're making applications to the truths that you have been taught. This is the opposite of being dull in hearing. Discipline is necessary for us to grow in the truth. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 1.7, says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of discipline, a sound mind, a disciplined 
mind. This is a gift that God gives us when we get saved. The fruit of the Spirit includes the gift or the fruit of self-discipline or self-control so that when we hear, we don't just hear the information, but we listen to it. And when we listen to the information, then we apply it. One of the greatest dangers to Christianity is the, one of the greatest dangers to Christianity and to us is the overwhelming amount of information that we have available to us, but the lack of pursuit in it and the lack of application of it. The Bible says in Luke 12 or 11, 28, he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and those who keep it. So undisciplined is a sign. A lack of discipline in your life is a sign of possibly spiritual unregenerate heart. It's a sign of decline. Okay, it's a, it's a sign of, of not having the, the spirit of God's power within you to bring deliverance, to bring life. These are just symptoms. They're there for your benefit. Okay, if you're, if, you're like the, you're, if you're like me, you see the symptoms and you fight the symptoms until, you, you know, until you're close to death before you go to the doctor, right? I don't know if anybody in here hates the doctor as much as I do. Not doctors in general, but I just hate going to the doctor, right? I don't, it, it has to be pretty dr- dramatic for me to be willing to go to the doctor. I think sometimes we're, we're a lot like that in our spiritual life, just unwilling to get help when we see all of the symptoms are there and we just don't go for help. Because you, know you know what I said a prayer when I was five years old and I know that I'm going to heaven when I die. Every sign in my life points to that the spirit of God does not live within me. But you know what? I'm good. You know, that's foolishness. It's foolishness. When every sign in your life points to the fact that the spirit of God does not dwell there, deal with that truth right there. Deal with that because that's what you need. The devil's greatest deception is, is that you're okay when you have every symptom of the fact that you're not okay. Undisciplined. The next thing that we see that is a sign or a symptom of a person who professes to be a Christian but is declining is an immaturity. The Bible says, for, that, for though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. So he says a few things here. He talks about later, talks about milk instead of eating, being able to eat meat. You're only able to eat milk. And for most people, milk, milk the difference between milk and meat is, is, is the, 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 the things that, that go beyond. It's, the, it's chapter number six, really. It's the things that go beyond just the salvation experience. It's like, what is, what is the application of that? How is the spirit and the righteousness of Christ being worked out through you? That would be symptomatic of somebody who is growing in their faith. Seeing Christ work out of them, not drinking meat, not drinking milk anymore, but, but eating meat. Okay, so these people should be teachers based upon how long they've been saved, but they're not teachers. They, they're still needing to be taught. So the length of time that we're saved, there should be some growth in understanding of the truth enough that we should be teaching. It's like Ephesians 4.11. Some he gave apostles and prophets and some 
evangelists and some preachers and teachers for the edifying of the saints, for the work of the ministry, or for the, for the um, oh man, I'm turning there. One little phrase out of order and it messes everything up, right? Let's see here. Ephesians 4, 11 says, um, uh, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building up the body of Christ. And these are things, this is a process that we should be going through as we're growing. We become a one who is being taught, trained, one who is doing the work, then one who is being the trainer. And time is the, and time is the thing that is what moves that forward. It's time, as we spend time with the Lord, as he spends time in us, it should change us, it should alter us, it should grow us naturally. There's nothing more needed. I mean, you take a baby and you feed that baby milk, right? We got lots of babies in the church, okay? Do you fertilize the baby too, or do you have to like read books to it, or before it will start growing, or you just feed it milk? I mean, maybe you read books to it, I don't know, but but you just, you, just, you just feed it milk and it grows, right? The baby just naturally grows because you give it milk. And then when it gets older, you give it food. And it just, I mean, it might not, if you don't read it books, it might not be very, the baby might not be very smart, but, but it's going to grow, right? And the more you feed it, it's going to grow. The thing, same principle is with the spiritual things. Is that there's a natural growth that takes place from the, from the fact that the Spirit of God indwells within us. If that growth is not taking place, it is not, it is not a healthy sign. If you, have a, if you have a baby that doesn't grow, I know that they have charts out there, right? Our kids, when they were little, we would take them in and they're like, where are they at on the charts, right? And they're in the top 10% or the top 90 or the top 50 or what, whatever. And then if they're like in below the charts, it's like, okay, we're, we're concerned, and we're really concerned if they stay below that chart for 10 years and they just remain the same size, right? We, we would be really, really concerned that there's something really, really wrong if that were to take place. That's what he's talking about here. It's not natural for a baby to stay a baby, nor is it natural for a believer to stay a new believer. There should be and will be natural growths that we experience that move us beyond the basics and move us into the fuller, richer, um, complete things of the Christian faith. It is moving past justification and moving into sanctification. It is moving past repentance and faith and moving into a changed life. And yes, repentance and faith is a part of life as a whole, but it, it is what he says here. Move past these basic elements. And he, and he says repentance and faith. This is not my words, it's his words. I mean, when I say it, I almost cringe saying, move past repentance and faith. But that's what he says. That's what God preached to them. Move past repentance and faith. There's a point in time in the Christian life where we should have repentance and faith so dealt with that we're able to move into sanctification and then be looking forward to glorification. There's a, there's a process that we're in and it is a process by which we are marked and identified. It's a danger not to be growing in these things. 
Step one is justification, repentance, and faith. Step two is sanctification. That's where we should be going. Make a note, make this note in your mind, if you will. The problem wasn't that they couldn't handle meat, okay? Note this. The problem wasn't that they couldn't handle meat. The problem was that milk was not accomplishing its purpose. They were not even dealing with milk effectively because milk effectively leads to what? If milk accomplishes its purpose, you will one day not drink milk anymore. So the problem was not that they couldn't handle meat. The problem was milk wasn't setting in. Milk wasn't accomplishing its purpose. Milk wasn't doing what it was supposed to do, which would lead to meat. The issue here is that faith and repentance are not insignificant to the journey, but faith and repentance had not yet taken root in the individual. And that's why they lived there, because it never changed them and altered them. Faith and repentance has to take root, and it will naturally lead to sanctification, changed life, altered actions, altered words, altered motives, altered everything. I no longer live for John Prettyman. I live for the glory of the Lord. Therefore, what I do in my daily life matters. I don't just do things just because I get to do them. You've heard the old saying, I did it because I could. Well, that's foolishness. That's not why we live. We do it for God's glory. And everything that we do is for God's glory. It's not that, the, it's not that we can't handle meat. It's that literally these people can't handle milk. The idea of repentance and faith, they can't even handle those truths because they haven't yet knelt down before the God of the universe in, in what we would call true repentance and true faith that changes and transforms your whole life. And therefore, they're never going to be able to endure meat because they haven't settled on milk. Milk will perform a work and it will prepare you and it will naturally transition you into meat. But you remember this. If justification doesn't take, neither will sanctification. If repentance and faith don't happen, neither will a transformed life. And remember this. If justification does happen, sanctification will happen. And if repentance and faith do happen, changed life will also happen. Amen. It's a package. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3, for the time is coming where, where men will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They are immature in their faith or immature in faith. Number four, the Bible says in uh, going on down uh, in verse number 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who, are, who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish between good 
and evil. Go, actually, go back a little bit further than that. I'm gonna get ahead of myself. Verse 13. For everyone who has who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Number four is that he is unskilled. The word means he lacks experience. He is ignorant of how things actually work. Okay? This would be the opposite of somebody who is well-trained, like David with the harp or David with the, with the sling or scriptures talk about the woodwork, the metal workers, the builders, the swordsmen. Talk about these guys as being skilled. The word skilled is used all throughout the Old Testament to define people who had a high level of skill with these different things. The Bible says that those who are in this mode of decline are unskilled in the word of righteousness. 1 Timothy 3.15, do, do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He says that they're unskilled, and then he says specifically they're unskilled in the word of righteousness. And there's two principles that are presented here. And they lack understanding, they lack comprehension of how these two things flow. And these two things, if you're taking notes, one is positional righteousness and one is practical righteousness. They don't understand how either of these work. Positional righteousness is something that Christ imputes to us. He places it on our account. He makes us righteous based solely on his own merits. Romans 5 and verse 19, for as by one man's righteousness, many will be made righteous. This is a positional um, righteousness that all believers bear based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. But this finished work of Christ is not what they are as much unskilled in as it is the practical outworking of that work. It is the righteousness that is a result of the imputed righteousness of Christ. It is the practical righteousness. It is 1 Peter 1.16 where the Lord says, Be ye holy as I am holy. It is the active work of God in me and the active work of God through me. Listen to what the scripture says in Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, verse 12, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out what has been worked in, work it out with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both the will to work his, both the will and the ability to work his good pleasure. Lack of practical outworking righteousness will lead to lack of confidence in positional righteousness. When you have time, I would encourage you to read 2 Peter 1 verses 3 through 10. A.W. Tozer says this, there is scarcely anything so, so dull and meaningless as Bible doctrine taught for its own sake. Truth divorced from life is not truth in a biblical sense, but something else and something less. Unskilled in the things of God. Number five, undiscerning. He says at the end of this passage, for solid food is for the mature, for those who have the power of discernment. 
Discernment just means the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. He uses that illustration at the end there. The ability to discern right from wrong, that that which is good and that which is bad, that which is evil and that which is right, the ability to discern these things. We live in a culture today, not just the worldly culture, but we live in a culture of Christianity that has a hard time discerning what life is. We have a hard time discerning what men are and what women are and what God's purpose is in creating them and placing them together in marriage. We have a hard time discerning those, what we would call very basic things. Why? Because we're, we're increasing in righteousness? No, because we're becoming less and less discerning. And folks, we should expect this, less, this lack of discernment from the world, but we should not expect this lack of discernment from the church. We should be growing in discernment. Isaiah 5 and verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Charles Spurgeon said, Discernment is not a matter of simply telling the difference between right and wrong. Whether, rather, it is the matter of telling the difference between right and almost right. What's the sign that we're declining? It's that we're undiscerning. We become less and less discerning. Again, the world should be expected. The church should not. Number six, unsettled. You'll notice in chapter number six, the first few verses, it talks about the fact that they were unsettled. They didn't, they didn't know whether they were coming or going. They wanted to be keep going, you know, moving forward and then backwards and forward and then backwards, not settled on, re- on repentance and faith, not settled on some of the very basics of the Christian um, faith and constantly going back and forth. The scripture tells us in Ephesians 4 and vor- verse 14 to be careful not to be tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine. We must not be unsettled. This is a sign of decline. We become more and more unsettled. The last thought this morning is is that they're unproductive. You'll notice down in verse number um, four, for it is impossible in the case of those who who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness and the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And I'll just stop there and I'll just want you to notice a few thoughts in, in the end. A person who is declining... Uh, in regards to their passion for Christ or has perhaps a false passion for Christ that is declining and revealing where they're at is somebody who will be fruitless or, or dull in their, in their Christian walk. You'll notice a few things about this. The past tense is used in every one of these statements in this text. In other words, what this person has is they have a look back at all of the things that quote unquote God has done in the past in their life. They have experienced the Holy, they, have, they, haven't, they aren't experiencing the Holy Spirit, they have experienced the Holy Spirit. They aren't experiencing the word of God, they have experienced the word of God. They aren't experiencing the power of, the, of, of Christ or the spirit within them, they have experienced that power within them. Everything about a dull Christian is built around something that has happened in the past. They're always looking back because there's nothing presently occurring in their life. The second thing that you'll notice from this 
especially in relation to the Hebrew people of the Old Testament, is that their experience of these things is a vicarious experience. In other words, they experience it as a congregation. When we come to church on Sunday, we experience the Holy Spirit. We experience the power of the Word of God. We experience all of these things listed here, right? But the question is, is do you ever experience that on your own? Is there ever a time where you're experiencing those things without having to be in a congregation of people who are experiencing it? The Lord is going to show up in the congregation. In the Old Testament, the Lord showed up in the congregation on a number of occasions. It didn't mean that everyone that was there was a believer. This unfruitfulness is built around the fact that we're always talking about what God is doing in other people's lives. Well, I've seen the Lord really working in Robert's life, and then we share in his experience. I think that's great, but the, but the issue is, is what's happening in his life doesn't mean that it's happening in my life. I cannot build on my relationship with God based upon what God is doing in somebody else's life. It must be what is God doing in my life? What is God doing now in my life? The issue with the unfruitful, the unproductive professing Christian is that nothing is personal about their experience with God. Everything has to do with somebody else's experiences with God or past experiences with God. The Bible tells us in Matthew 3 and verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In the end, in the end, we notice physical infirmities. We notice rashes. We notice stomach aches. We notice fevers. We notice pain. And we have all of these things because God has put them into our lives so that we can go to the doctor and get help. In the same in the same discipline, in the same vein, it is important to identify when we have serious spiritual infirmities and when we need help. In the end, when we recognize these spiritual infirmities and recognize our inability to solve them, we have one place and only one place to go, and that is to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can solve this. And next week, we'll deal with three simple principles that God gives us in this same context of how to deal with it. We run to Jesus Christ. We communicate him with prayer. We read and study his word. We, we develop a fellowship and a relationship with Christ that leads to a life change. John 15 and verse 7 and 8 says, If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you will bear much fruit and so prove to be one of my disciples. Where are we at today? Where are we at spiritually? What is God communicating to us? What is God saying to us? What are the symptoms of our life saying to us? The Lord is not just a Lord that saves us from hell, although that's a great benefit of it, isn't it? He is the Lord that saves us from sin. And he changes us. He makes us new. And that change and that transformation is crucial for having confidence in him. Let's pray together.
Father, we do pray this morning that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that hasn't experienced you on a personal level, that is maybe building on a weak foundation, maybe hoping in a false hope, I pray this morning that you would penetrate their hearts with your truth and that they would leave here and they would meditate on and think about, is Christ in me? And if not, that they would come humbly into your presence and they would make it right. They would trust and repent and deal with that and then move forward. Lord, I pray that you would guide and direct and produce fruits for your glory and give you the thanks in Jesus Christ's name.